this afternoon. We will take uh, maybe 20 to 25 minutes for the presentation. And then Zolt Darvas will initiate the discussion. Zolt for 10 minutes, maybe. And then we will open the floor to a discussion. I remind you that the event is live streamed. So we, there are people watching from uh, outside uh, Brussels, maybe from outside Belgium. So, Luis, the floor is yours. We're waiting for the slides to come up. Very good. Uh, Maria, so thank you very much uh, for, for being here. This is a great crowd. Um, we will be presenting the 2016 external sector report. This was made public in early August. Uh, what this report does, and this is the fifth year of this report, it tries to document the evolution of global imbalances. It tries to discuss the drivers of those imbalances. It also tries to, or it attempts to, um, provide an assessment for external positions of countries. And in that context also, we discuss what would be the policy advice that we would provide, both to deal with these excess imbalances at the country level as well as more the global level. In terms of this particular publication, it is meant to complement the World Economic Report that many of you know. Um, this report provides a little bit more granularity on the evolution of external current accounts, exchange rates, and associated risks. Um, following the global financial crisis, there was a sense from the IMF uh, Board of Directors that the issue of global imbalances, of you know, excess imbalances um, under overvaluation of exchange rates were not paid sufficient attention. And this report actually attempts to provide you know, more attention to the subject and also attempts to provide more policy advice to address those particular problems. I have a set of slides that I will go through that I think that will help to provide you with a sense of what we found in the report this year. Maybe what I can do is provide you really quickly while we wait is an outline of the presentation. So the first part of the presentation will be focused much more on positive developments, meaning what happened and why they happened. So what we will do here, and this is finally up. It's right on time. So here we have a discussion of the outline. We'll talk about the evolution of global current accounts and exchange rates. What we saw in 2015, was a widening and a reconfiguration of imbalances. And this is the first time since the global financial crisis that we have seen, again, a widening in these imbalances. We will discuss what were the drivers behind it, what were the roles of the symmetry in the global recovery, particularly among systemic economies, the role of commodity and capital flow shocks as drivers for these widening of imbalances. The second part of the presentation is about our assessment of external positions of countries. It could well be that the developments that we have seen are, can be explained country fundamentals or cyclical issues, commodity shocks, maybe they were explained by that. So what we try to do is see to what extent, right, is it explained by fundamentals or is it explained by something else? So in the assessment of external positions, this is what we do. We try to see how current accounts, how exchange rates compare to where they should be. I will explain also how those assessments are conducted by the IMF, what is the role of the model and staff judgment, 
and we go deeper into what happened in 2015 with that particular assessment. I end my presentation to discuss the policy challenges that this report brings about. So let's move on to discussing what happened. So what we see is that after narrowing in the aftermath of the global financial crisis, global flow imbalances remain broadly stable in the period of 11 through 14, and we have seen a moderate widening starting in 2015. So this is indicated by the chart. What we see is now global surpluses reached about 2.1% of global GDP, and what we recall global deficits reached about 1.8% of GDP. This widening is also interestingly taking place at a time when the surpluses of oil exporters have come down tremendously. So you see the blue bar in 2015, 14, sorry, disappearing and actually turning into deficits. So what is quite striking about the developments is that this is happening despite the fact that oil exporters are reducing their surpluses. Let's move on and discuss what were the countries that drove the evolution of these imbalances. Why did the imbalances widen in 2015? What this chart shows are two sets of countries. The countries in red are countries where the imbalances increased. The x-axis shows here the current account in 2014. If you're to the right, you're running surpluses. The y-axis shows the change in the current account. Countries in the upper right quadrant are countries that were running surpluses and whose surpluses increased. So what we see is Japan, China, Korea, Germany, Thailand, and the CHA there is Switzerland. So what we see is a group of countries whose surpluses have gone up. That partly explains why imbalances go up. On the other hand, on the bottom left quadrant, what we see are countries that were running deficits and whose deficits actually increased. And there we have the United States. And we have other commodity exporters like Mexico, Australia, and Canada driving that. So what we notice here is that the countries that drive the increase in imbalances are basically the large systemic economies. Japan, China, Korea, and Germany on one side, higher surpluses, the US, Canada, Australia, higher deficits. Now, it was not all a bad story. What we also saw was some moderation of imbalances that took place in some places. As discussed, we see here the oil exporters. Those surpluses came down quite significantly, and that's the case of Saudi Arabia as well as Norway. And we also see emerging markets and some of the euro area debtor countries whose deficits have come down again okay, in a, an important fashion. So what we see is Brazil's current account deficit coming down significantly, as well as Turkey and South Africa. But we also see there Greece, we see France, as well as Poland. So what we have is a mixed picture increase, a widening of imbalances driven by systemic economies with some offsetting effects by oil exporters as well as emerging markets that are more vulnerable as well as you know, your area countries that had debtor positions. So this is from a country's perspective what happened. This chart, what it tells me a little bit is let's look at the exchange rate developments in the larger systemic countries. So part of the changes in the current account that we saw, the fact that the deficit in the US increased, was partly explained by the fact that the dollar, and this is the first one there, what we see is an important appreciation of the dollar since 2012-13. The same thing can be said with the current account of the, of the UK that also worsened. We saw that the sterling appreciated quite substantially. 
China's renminbi also appreciated because it's pegged to the dollar. What is quite interesting is that the countries that saw important improvements in their current account, an increase in their surplus, we saw the euro area, and the euro has in some ways as well depreciated, as well as the yen depreciation, and that led to higher surpluses in Japan. If you look at emerging markets, what we see in those cases is that we see improvements in the current account in emerging markets, maybe less deficits, and that's driven also by the fact that their currencies have depreciated. So part of the story has also to do with movements in currencies. What we have spoken so far is about what would be flow imbalances. What happened to the current account, which is quantities, and what happened with exchange rate, which is prices. And we've explained so far what's happened. What is quite interesting is that we haven't yet focused on what's happening with the stock position of countries. What's happened since the global financial crisis is, even despite the fact that flow imbalances have come down quite importantly, the stock positions actually have worsened or tended to widen. So countries that were running, sorry, countries were, that were running uh, creditor positions, those creditor positions have increased because their current accounts remain in surplus. Countries that were running deficits, right, their, their debtor positions actually are also increasing because they're still running deficits. The, there are some exceptions to this, and that's the upper left quadrant where we see some euro area countries that have finally moved to running current account surpluses and having a very negative NIIP position. The point here is the following. We're fo one of the focuses of the report is on flow imbalances, but another focus is on stock imbalances. And even though in the flow side we have seen some of them come down since the global financial crisis, the stock positions have actually worsened. Let's move on and let's discuss quickly what were the drivers of this external reconfiguration. I will go quickly through these because you have heard these before. The first thing is the movements in the current account are associated with the fact that we've seen an uneven recoveries in much of the advanced world. The chart on the left shows real GDP, this is the index, and what we have seen is, especially since 2011, the GDP, the real GDP, and also driven by demand of the US and the UK have been much stronger. That of the euro area and Japan have been much weaker. What this means is that demand has been stronger and therefore their current accounts have weakened. On the right side, what we see is what is the impact of stronger demand on monetary policy? What we have seen is that even though monetary policy rates oops, have remained broadly unchanged in most of these countries with the exception of the euro area, what we see is that at least for the case of the US and the UK, we see that the two-year rate trending upwards, which suggests that their demand is stronger and inflation expectations are also quite stronger as well, okay? This is through 2015. So part of the reason why we've seen current accounts move in the way that they have moved and worsen in the case of the US and the UK is because their demand, their recovery is much stronger. Another important aspect and another important driver has been the commodity price decline that happened in 2015. And in particular in the case of oil, and what we saw is that oil prices coming down quite importantly. That had a huge income redistribution effect in the world. It moved income from commodity exporters, this is oil and metals, and particularly to commodity importers, which are mainly you know, China, the US, and much of the developed world. 
what we saw is huge declines or huge income losses in the cases of Saudi Arabia and Russia. And in the cases of these economies, 18% of GDP, that's the income loss for Saudi Arabia, roughly 7% of GDP in the case of Russia for 2015 alone, and smaller amounts in the case of Brazil, Canada, Australia. So what we saw, huge redistribution of income from commodity exporters to importers. The gains in the case of importers were a little bit more widespread. So what you saw is the benefits from the terms of trade gain in the case of the US amounted to only about half percent of GDP. In the case of China, about 1% of GDP. And you know, within the Eurozone, anywhere in the order of 1% to 2% of GDP. Those were the gains that came from the commodity price decline. Now, what does that mean for global imbalances? What this chart tries to do is explain who benefits and who loses. And this is only looking at the direct income effect. The green dots show those that, that win, meaning that you know, how the green dot shows that the, 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 um, the developments on the, on the terms of trade side is benefiting imbalances. On the lower bottom corner, what we see is that the surplus economies, the surplus commodity exporters, right, they're seeing lower surpluses, so that's good for imbalances. On the other hand, the importers that were running deficits, right, they're seeing those deficits improve. And so both of these are very positive for global imbalances. But what we also had was the fact is that two things. One is that the commodity price shock really benefited a lot some of the surplus commodity importers. So in this case, it's China, the Euro area, Japan, and Korea. They're benefiting from that. So their surpluses are growing. That's not good for global imbalances. And the deficit commodity exporters, meaning Mexico, Canada, and Australia, this income shock actually makes their deficits larger. So what we have is once we take this picture as a whole, we see that the commodity price shock itself had a very limited effect on imbalances. Although it was positive, it wasn't as positive as we had first predicted, in part because of the redistribution of this income and how it was allocated. Another shock that we talked about was tighter financial conditions in most emerging markets. And what this chart tries to show is how those financial conditions evolved for both commodity exporters as well as commodity importers. And it's important to distinguish between the two. Tighter financial conditions in the case of commodity exporters reflected itself mainly through an increase in spreads. So this is Brazil, Chile, Peru. These are large commodity exporters, South Africa. What you saw for them was not so much a decline in what would be the capital flows, but much more an increase in spreads. And the reason why you didn't see a decline in capital flows for these countries was because they faced an income shock, and they needed to absorb that income shock in some regards, right, by borrowing from abroad. So if you see their flows, they're not coming down as much. What is interesting to see is how much their spreads have come up, which is that purple line. Commodity importers, nevertheless, faced a very different story. Their spreads really did not change much. But their demand for flows, for financing, came down significantly in part because they were benefiting from the terms of trade. So again, the tighter financial conditions in EMs manifested itself very differently. In the case of exporters, through higher spreads, and in the case of importers, through reduced financing. And this can be explained in this particular chart, and this takes you back to Economics 101, demand and supply. Let's look at commodity exporters on the left. What we happened in 2015, you had basically a supply shock. 
You know, there was less supply of foreign financing to emerging markets. So that curve moved to the left in both cases. The big difference was, did the demand for financing increase or decrease? In the case of commodity exporters, the demand for financing had to go up because they faced a negative income shock. So what you had in those for them is basically the spreads go up and the total amount of flows broadly unchanged, which is what we saw. In the case of commodity importers, what we had is lower demand for financing, but very little increase in spreads as shown in this particular chart. So when you think about emerging markets and we think about, you know, the capital flow shock, it did manifest itself very differently depending on what group of countries you need to look at. So now we have discussed so far, you know, the asymmetries in recovery and advanced world. We've discussed also the commodity price shocks and the capital flow shocks. How does this all come together? And this chart tries to explain this. Um, and let me take some time to try to, you know, go through this in, in some detail and care because this is where I'm trying to aggregate everything together. Let's look at the first bars, which are the commodity exporters. And the commodity exporters, we have both deficit and surplus countries. The yellow bar there shows us what was the direct terms of trade loss. So both com commodity exporters suffered a huge loss in their terms of trade, so an income loss. How did they somehow react to that income loss? The deficit countries, what they did is that they basically shrunk demand quite importantly. So that's the red bar. The net exports actually you know, contributed in the opposite direction. Even though they lost income, they basically offset that by adjustment. And the adjustment relative to the size of the income loss for deficit countries was much larger than for surplus countries, in part because they had less buffers to deal with the shock. But also, so when you look at commodity exporters, what you see is that their reaction, the difference between deficit and surpluses, right, countries, was different and actually they worked in a way of reducing imbalances because the deficit countries are making more of an effort of dealing with that income shock. What is most different is what happened with commodity importers and here we draw attention to the advanced world, okay, which are the bulk of commodity importers. What you see is that both deficit and surplus countries benefit tremendously from the terms of trade shock, that's the yellow bar that you see move up. The difference is how they reacted to that income shock. The deficit countries, the US and the UK mainly, reacted by that positive income shock by consuming more of that windfall. And that's that red bar that we see there. So they consume far more of the oil wind, windfall than other countries. The reason why oil was not a shot in the arm as we thought it would be was because many of the surplus countries that received this terms of trade gain did not use it, did not consume it. And this is particularly Japan and some countries in the Euro area as well, okay? So how, how, the, how the windfall is used was extremely important. And why oil was not a shot in the arm was partly because of the fact that many of the surplus advanced economies did not use them in the way that we expected to. So from a global imbalances perspective, the fact that the deficit countries did most of the you know, consuming or investing of the windfall is not a good thing for imbalances. The chart on the right, which is quite interesting, points to you a bit the role of the exchange rate. What we saw is in the case of commodity importers, we saw both deficit and surplus countries, their net import volumes grew about the same because they received this income shock, maybe their import volumes grew about the same. The big difference is look at the export volumes, how much faster they grew in the case of surplus countries. And the reason being is that most of these surplus countries were also observing a depreciation of their exchange rate. So their exchange rates were weakening, 
which allow them to export far more. So when you think about the role of all of these shocks, what we saw is it seems that Yes, commodities played a role, but the biggest role in understanding the imbalances in 2015 is the asymmetry in recoveries and policies in the advanced world, okay? The fact that you had stronger demand in the U.S. and an, an appreciation of the U.S. dollar as well as the sterling, and the flip side of that was, you know, depre you know depreciations in, in Japan, depreciations in Korea, you know, real depreciations in, in, in much of the euro area, but also sluggish demand in these areas, that explains why the imbalance is widening. Going back to the whole issue of the role of exchange rates, there's been a lot of talk that the exchange rates today are not what they used to be. And it, there may be some truth to that because of the, the role of global value chains. But this chart shows us that exchange rates still matter and they play a buffering role. And if you look at 2015, what we saw is that countries that depreciated, meaning that they were to the left, of the zero there, and that's the x-axis. Countries that depreciated saw their real exports grow far faster than others that did not, that saw an appreciation. So what I basically want to emphasize here is that exchange rates playing a role in the evolution of imbalances and playing a role in explaining the behavior of exports. Now we're gonna move on to the second part of the presentation, which is about the external assessments. And the question here, or, or you know, we've seen is so far, um, and one of the questions that we'll have is, we've seen a growth in imbalances, but is that something that is good or bad? And to judge that, we need to see how the current accounts have evolved relative to their fundamentals or norms. Otherwise, we're not able to say whether this was a good thing or a bad thing, or a natural consequence or not. So what we do is we, we try at the IMF to do an external assessment. And what this means is we try to ascertain how current accounts differ relative to fundamentals and desired policies. This is a difficult exercise. And, um, and you know, we take, um, you know, a great deal, I would say, of caution in putting these together. We use a model and the model somehow is a big feeder into how we drive these assessments, how we come up with these assessments. It's a multilateral model. It's a panel regression of the large economies in the world, um, 50 economies. We put them together and we see what those models spits out in terms of what the norm should be, what, you know, for particular countries. The model then is also accompanied by some judgment because the model itself doesn't capture all the country specific, you know, details. Uh, it may be having some missing variables. So we couple the model with staff judgment. And on that basis, we come up with an assessment. Now the issue is this, because judgment is country specific, what we need to do is meet with all the teams and make sure that that judgment is multilaterally consistent. So if Korea wants to make an adjustment or Japan wants to make an adjustment to deal with some country specific issue, and it may be right to do so, it only makes sense if it adds up. So what we do is we meet with teams, we use the model, we use the judgment, and make sure that they add up and they aggregate. This is an exercise that takes roughly six weeks, and it's a long process of engagement with teams as well as with management. So we do trust the model, but we understand that the model itself has limitations and it must be accompanied by judgment. And how do we deal with this judgment? That requires, you know, 
the other softer side, which is, you know, meeting with teams and making sure that whatever judgment they have makes sense, it adds up, and it's even-handed. So I've already explained what is in this chart here. So the way in which this works, and we have about 50 country teams that receive the model estimates from the EBA. There are also other external sector indicators that they rely on. They then use judgment, and that judgment is discussed with a group, which I'm part of, and which I lead, which is called the ESR group. And that's where we somehow try to iron out discrepancies. We want to make sure that they're multilaterally consistent and even-handed. So we play a role in vetting these assessments. Okay? And at the end of this process, we put together this report. So again, yes, we rely on the model, but we also rely on judgment, and we also try to make sure that that judgment is multilaterally consistent. I wanted to spend some time in explaining this because there will be questions about how these norms come about. And you know, it was important to clarify up front that you know, there is a long and tedious process that is behind this. So let's look at the results of the assessments. So what we try to do here is evaluate. We've seen you know, a widening in imbalances. And then the question is, does this mean also a widening in excess imbalances? And what the report finds is that, indeed, what we have seen is a widening in excess imbalances, that the terms of trade shock can explain part of the reason why they may have moved. But fundamentally, what we have seen is that excess surpluses in Japan, Germany, the Netherlands have all gone up. Excess deficits in the US, Great Britain, Canada, Australia have also gone up. So what we have seen is a widening of imbalances, both a widening of surpluses, excess surpluses, and a widening of excess deficits. Very much in line with what we have seen you know, empirically and what we saw in 2015. It was not all bad. And again, what we have seen is a narrowing of some of the excess deficits, which are the, the dots um, on the left. And so what we basically hear is the vulnerable emerging markets who were in a position to reduce their current account deficits also saw those excess deficits come down. In this group, there's also a group of your area countries. And we have here Spain, and we also have France. This is, in some ways, this is a more reduced set of countries. We're looking at only 29 economies and not 50, which I had before. But the point that we want to make here is the following. Excess imbalances have widened. There was some narrowing and basically driven by vulnerable emerging markets as well as some euro area countries. Okay? The widening of these imbalances is taking place in the context where these imbalances have been tremendously persistent. What this chart tries to do here is we're trying to rank countries depending on whether they were their current account positions were stronger than warranted by fundamentals. Those are the blue ones on the top. And the bottom ones are the weaker than fundamentals. In the middle, what we basically have are current accounts that are more or less in line with fundamentals. The group on the top, which are the ones that are stronger, whose current accounts are stronger, whose exchange rates are undervalued, what is quite striking among this group is that it hasn't changed. That blue line remains blue for Germany, Korea, Singapore, Malaysia, Netherlands, Sweden. The current account surpluses are deemed to be too large relative to their fundamentals. And there's been no movement on the top part of the distribution. In the bottom part of the distribution, we see more change. 
So what we see is that in the case of South Africa, they were basically having moderately weaker external positions, and those are improving. And the same thing we could say for France, the same thing we could say for Brazil. So much more movement in the bottom among emerging markets. The big change this year was the following. Look at the United States. The United States moved from being broadly in line with fundamentals and the dollar as well as the current account to one whereby the US is now moderately weaker, meaning that the dollar is too strong and the current account is too weak. And the same thing happened with Japan. They were in line with fundamentals, but they moved to become moderately stronger. Their currency, the yen, is too weak, and the current account in Japan is too strong. So the main point that I want to bring up here is that the widening of imbalances happens in a context where these are extremely persistent, especially at the top. Okay? So there's probably good reasons for that. And we will talk to that about that in the policy challenges. The report documents developments through the end of 2015. The assessments are for 2015. So there's the question is, well, we're already in August, or September, sorry, of 2016. So what have developments more recently meant or could mean going forward? What this chart tells me is the following. The x-axis shows what is my real exchange rate gap, whether I'm undervalued or overvalued. If I'm to the right, I'm deemed to be overvalued. If I'm to the left, I'm undervalued. So let's look at the exchange rate movements that have happened, the real exchange rate movements in the course of 2015. What we have seen is that in the case of Japan in particular, they were deemed to be undervalued, but their exchange rate has appreciated tremendously. And the appreciation has been substantially stronger following the UK referendum or the vote for Brexit. The UK is also another case in point where their exchange rates actually have depreciated quite substantially. And now one could say that they're maybe in line with fundamentals. The sterling has depreciated, even though it was deemed to be overvalued. The reason why we're not making an assessment on 2016 is precisely because in the case of Great Britain, I don't know what the norm is anymore. Because of Brexit, right, the fundamentals of the country have changed, particularly in the medium term. You know? So having an assessment on Great Britain now will be far more complicated because the fundamentals are very different. Whether it has depreciated by 15 and saying that now it's in line with fundamentals, I doubt it. And would it have to depreciate more? Perhaps. But that's something that we will take on in the next report. Um, the most important thing here that I want to take out is that with the exception of Japan and Great Britain, most currencies loss for the larger countries haven't really moved too much. So 2016 has been a year that maybe there has been a lot of volatility, but in terms of big movements, not much. So next year will be an assessment of what, what is the implication of the yen appreciation for, the, for their current account position? What is the implication of the sterling um, depreciation for their current account position? And what does it mean globally? Because if Japan appreciates and is now deemed to be in line with fundamentals, and the same thing with Great Britain, who's gonna offset Japan? Because Japan is way larger than the UK. So again, these are the questions that we'll have to ask going forward. You know, who is, if, if Japan becomes now in line with fundamentals, right? Who becomes undervalued? Is it China? And if we see here, the renminbi has come down quite a bit. So if, if Japan moves from not being undervalued, who's going to be now sort of um, 
undervalued? And that's the question that we'll deal with going forward. So what are the policy challenges behind this? And so here I'll make two references. First, imbalances have widened. Second, they've been tremendously persistent, which implies that probably policies are not playing the role that they should be in reducing these imbalances. There are two sorts of policies that I want you to keep in mind. The first thing is the near-term policies. What can demand policies do to address the issue of imbalances? And the second thing would be what would structural policies do to do with it? But structurals are much more long-term and they will be necessary as we will discuss. This chart tries to put together the dilemma that countries are facing. On the y-axis, I have the output gap, meaning what is the extent of slack that exists in an economy. On the x-axis, I have the external gap, which is correcting for the cycle, where is my current account position? So what we see is that most of the world has negative output gaps. They're running slack, you know, and this is a feature in the world. The only country, an exception is Malaysia, and maybe to some extent Germany, but they're basically in line. Their output gap is closed. Countries to the right, the bottom right of this quadrant, are countries that are, have slack or negative output gap, but also excess surpluses. Countries on the bottom left are countries that are have slack, but what would be called excess deficits. The policy recommendations to deal both with the fact that they have slack and the fact that they have an external gap will differ depending on where you are here. Countries that have excess surpluses, Japan, Korea, China, Thailand, the Netherlands, in order to basically close both the excess surpluses, you know, and also close the gap, they would need to conduct fiscal policy. Because by conducting fiscal policy and easing fiscal policy, not only do you close the gap, but you also somehow close your current account gap. Stimulating demand is going to reduce your current account surplus. So these countries on the bottom right, what they should be doing is really moving much more on the fiscal front. Now, that's not to say that fiscal policy should be everything. All right? The key issue here is really that there should be reduced reliance only on monetary policy and that fiscal in these guys has to play a far more important role. Now, I haven't discussed yet the role of whether these countries have fiscal space. So take the case of Japan whose debt to GDP ratio is in excess of 200% of GDP, could they do fiscal policy? Our view is that they can do some fiscal policy provided they have a medium-term you know, anchor or credible medium-term policy to bring down debt over time. But that's not to mean that in the near term that they cannot. You know? So these are countries that are operating with excess surpluses, they have, a, they have slack, and they should rely, be relying much more on fiscal policy to close both of them. Countries on the left that have excess external deficits should be relying much more on monetary policy. Why monetary policy? Because if my currency devalues and depreciates, that would allow me to export more and the current account to improve. It also will dampen demand, which is what I, you know, but more importantly, I can export my way out, okay? The, the depreciation of my currency is going to do two things. And the easing of monetary policy is going to both close the gap, but also close the external gap. Okay. So these are countries that should rely much more on monetary policy, which is one of the reasons why the IMF, when it tells the US, be very careful in normalizing your monetary policy, is precisely because if you do it, you know, if you do it too quickly, your dollar is going to, the dollar is going to appreciate further, and it's actually going to undermine the recovery as well. So for many of these countries, you know, 
the reliance should be a monetary policy. That's not to say that you cannot use, use fiscal policy. And here I'll point the case of Canada. Remember that Canada more recently has a fiscal stimulus. And the reason why is because, well, they want to close the output gap. They know very well that the external gap is going to worsen, implying that over time they're going to have to consolidate. Now, here I'm trying to point to you a dilemma, but then it's not necessarily sort of a time-consistent dilemma. It could well be that I can move away from my external gap, acknowledging that over time I will need to address it. But when you put these countries in this particular framework, what you see is very clearly surplus countries need to do far more in the fiscal area. Let me quickly make reference to Germany. Germany has a closed output gap, meaning that to close the external gap, how would they go about doing so, you know, even if it has a positive one? Our view is the following, is that Germany should use fiscal policy to be able to spend more in Germany, encourage investment, and in the process, obtain an internal appreciation, bringing up wages. So we can live with some fiscal stimulus. It may generate some overheating, but that overheating itself is going to lead to higher wages and an internal appreciation because they don't have independent monetary policy. So therefore, the fiscal policy needs to act in that particular direction. And the advice that we're providing for Germany is use fiscal policy. This will help on the external side through an internal appreciation process, okay? Now, we will talk also about the role of structural policies because, you know, demand-side policies are not the only panacea to deal with global imbalances. But let me make reference to this, to, to what role has fiscal policy, what role has fiscal policy played in the course of the last years. One of the things that we see is that much of the world following the global financial crisis and the stimulus that was injected began to consolidate their fiscal positions. So those are the blue bars in the case of the US, the UK, and the Euro area debtor countries. Large fiscal consolidations in 11, 12, 13, and partly 14. So what we saw is that the reduction in global imbalances that we saw post-global financial crisis were largely driven by fiscal policy in many of the debtor countries. They actually quite consolidated quite strongly and brought those imbalances down, okay? What is quite striking here is that the surplus countries did the same. They consolidated maybe to the less extent, but they consolidated. So the role of fiscal policy in surplus countries did not work to reduce imbalances, but actually add to them. And you see that in 2014. The only exception was 15, that the fiscal stimulus that took place in China was one that Thank God it took place and they played a global role of ensuring that their surpluses didn't grow more than they did. The question is going forward. If we look at the role of policies, fiscal policy and imbalances, what we see is that, yes, now we're beginning to see a change in terms of strategy. Maybe let's rely more on fiscal to stimulate demand. And we see surplus countries, both China and other surplus countries, doing so. But so are debtor countries. So the question is, yes, there's a move towards maybe using fiscal policy, and the question mark, is this going to be sufficient? Let's not delve only on the issue of policy, demand side, and fiscal. It's very important that structural reforms accompany this process, particularly because these imbalances are persistent. In the case of surplus countries, what you want is for most of them to increase investment, all right? Maybe with the exception of China, where the, what they want to do is reduce savings far more. 
So in the case of China, you want to strengthen the social safety net, and that reduces the precautionary motives. But in the case of you know, Germany, in the case of Japan, in the case of Korea, what you want to do is to mobilize investment, corporate investments, streamlined service and product sector reform. So that's the type of reforms that surplus countries to do, ones that boost investment. In the case of the deficit, those with excess deficits, it's much more about encouraging savings and competitiveness. So for savings, maybe strengthening you know, financial intermediation. There's a lot of work to be done in reducing the generosity of pension systems in the case of Brazil, as you're now seeing. Uh, you also want to facilitate the diversification of their economies away from commodities to other sectors. And labor market flexibility, which allows you to increase competitiveness. So this is on the structural side, very different recommendations depending on where you are in the external end. So let me end with a presentation here, and I'll be able to take questions. What were the key takeaways? Widening of global imbalances that happened in 2015, several factors, uneven recovery in advanced markets probably being the most important one. We've seen also widening of excess imbalances, larger excess surpluses in Japan and, and, and Germany, and larger excess deficits in the US and the UK. And there's been very little progress in dealing with these excess surpluses. In terms of the policy implications from this, what we need to do is avoid reliance on monetary policy, less demand diverting, more demand enhancing, and fiscal policy playing a bigger role, particularly for surplus countries. Structural reforms having a role to play, depending on where you are. And our view is that the global collective action, meaning that, you know, a coordinated fiscal stimulus or monetary stimulus is something that is not necessarily in the cards, but could be should global demand sour further. So with this, I'd like to end my presentation and I'd be happy to take questions here from you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Luis. That was very clear. Zolt, do you want to start with your comments? <coughs> yes. Uh, <coughs> I, I start by saying that this is a really a great report. Uh, <coughs> And the reason I'm saying, not just because I would like to be polite, <coughs> but I, I do think that this is, this is a great report. Uh, I also read a couple of earlier versions of this, of this report, which, uh, I mean, earlier vintages in the past years, which, which also inspired my, my own work in the, in the subject. And I think that the current report is also, also excellent. I mean, you have seen that, that uh, stylized facts are, are really crystallized and, and presented in a very neat way using very telling and, and, and useful charts. Uh, there was a very clear analysis on, on what drivers uh, would have, would have uh, lead to the various developments. There is also a very complicated and, and demanding model estimation <coughs> for, for the normative uh, analysis. And this whole multilaterally consistent work is, is really a great effort and, and, and great improvement compared to the pre-crisis situation when we didn't have uh, such uh, <coughs> globally consistent analysis of external positions. And I also <coughs> believe that in the pre-crisis position, uh, pre-crisis period, the large global imbalances were at least a symptom of major underlying uh, factors and, and vulnerabilities. I mean, there was a large debate uh, a few years ago whether global imbalances perceived were the causes of the global financial uh, and, and economic crisis or more of a symptom. I tend to agree that in, it is more of a symptom, but if it's a symptom, then it has to be analyzed and understood and the risks um, <coughs> assessed. So again, I, I just would like to praise the report a lot. 
um, also very much like Louis' presentation, which was very clear, using excellent charts, so, so indeed I, I very much enjoyed. Now, I would like to make four comments, partly comments, partly questions, uh, uh, <coughs> to a little bit uh, foster, foster a debate. Um, the first, first comment I, I make is that if you look at the very first chart you showed on global imbalances, then we are more or less getting back in terms of current account imbalances uh, to the pre-crisis situation. There are certainly major uh, I mean, uh, <coughs> differences, like oil exporting countries, which had large current account surpluses earlier. They do not, do not have such surpluses uh, anymore. Why euro area current account deficit countries, which had large deficits in the past, uh, <coughs> they are more or less balanced or, or in a surplus. But if you look at the other global players, including China and, and the US, um, also euro area surplus countries in Japan, uh, then we see that they are not fully at the level where they were before, but reaching that level. And my, my first comment is that, <coughs> or more a, a suggestion, then I think it would be worth assessing, you know, what are the risks which, <coughs> which these uh, imbalances potentially can create, and also bringing this, uh, I mean, global development uh, or, or stylized fact reporting uh, in line with your with your assumptions, so showing you know how much of these global imbalances are excess imbalances, uh, and how much which just reflect fundamentals, because that would certainly help uh, a better understanding whether current developments are worrisome or not. Uh, so it is just just a suggestion to <clears throat> to look at a, a bit more detail <clears throat> on uh, at the global scale whether imbalances are indeed excessive, and if they are what kind of risks they, they, may, they may pose or, or what kind of underlying uh, uh, problems they may reflect. Uh, my second point <clears throat> relate to foreign exchange reserves, uh, which receive uh, rather limited uh, attention in the report. I mean, you had a chart on, <clears throat> on, on showing reserves for, for commodity importing and exporting countries, but that chart excluded China, Japan, and Saudi Arabia. Uh, <clears throat> three indeed major reserve holding countries. And the reason I ask this, this point is that if you look at the mid-1990s, then global reserves amounted to a mere 3% of global GDP. Uh, and there was a major long period, uh, almost two decade long period of foreign exchange reserve accumulation by up to 2013, uh, <coughs> global reserves increased to about 15% of GDP. But since then, we see a change in this trend. So this almost two decade long trend of foreign currency reserve uh, accumulation has changed. And even there was some decline in, in reserves, uh, not just as a share of GDP, but even, even nominally. And I think this is a very I mean, notable phenomenon and, and clearly indicates that something has changed around 2003. And you know, understanding what are the implications of that. I mean, that can be a way, for example, for emerging countries, which are facing, uh, I mean, tighter financial conditions, as you argue, the number of countries uh, are, are such that, or facing capital outflows uh, in the wake of, of uh, monetary policy uh, <coughs> normalization in, in the United States. They could just use their foreign exchange reserves to cushion that, that shock, or, or something more fundamental has started. Uh, my third point relate to, uh, to the so-called stock imbalances. So in the, in the report, you talk uh, about stock imbalances at a number of 
number of uh, occasions, but I don't really know what, what assessment you use uh, to judge whether, I mean, under stock we mean the net foreign asset position, um, so I don't know what measure you use to judge whether a country's net foreign net asset position is in balance or, or there is an imbalance. I looked at the more detailed methodological description, which is also at your website, so I also want to emphasize that this is a very transparent report, so many details are, are provided. And there is a table <coughs> uh, which shows what kind of benchmark net foreign asset position uh, the report considers, and they look at what kind of current account would lead to that position. And out of the 25 countries which are, which are listed here, for 22, the benchmark position is just the actual position. So for Australia, uh, it was minus 57% uh, in 2014, and the benchmark is uh, minus 57%. For Switzerland, it was 99% in 2014, and the benchmark is 99%. I only found three countries. Spain, when you assume that it's almost minus 100% of, of GDP net foreign asset position basically have to half, uh, and South Africa and Sweden, when you, you uh, in South Africa you would expect some deterioration and in Sweden uh, some, uh, some increase in, in the benchmark. But I think this is really a, a crucial issue on, on how to assess uh, whether a net foreign asset position is in an equilibrium or, or any excess or, 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 in, or in deficit. Um, and also if you would have a, a measure of what would be a desirable, sustainable or desirable measure or, in, uh, or level of net foreign asset position, you could also look at what current account would drive there, let's say in five years time or, or whatever time horizon, and then that would be an alternative indicator also for, for your current account imbalance measure. And the last point <coughs> I would like to uh, raise is that um, <coughs> is the interconnectedness between current account gaps and output gaps. Now what the report currently does, if I'm not mistaken, is that it uses uh, the output gap estimates of the IMF, which was estimated elsewhere. Uh, <clears throat> I mean, as far as I know, there are, it also mostly comes from, from country teams, and then uses this current account, uh, sorry, uses this output gap as a regressor in the current account uh, regression. And let me, let me raise the point of, of Germany, which you, which you described some detail, and indeed that's an issue that we have, I think, debated in this room a number of, number of times. For Germany, you concluded that uh, the output gap is practically balanced, so there is no, no output gap, but there is a very large uh, uh, current account surplus, so a very large current account surplus gap. Now, the first point is that you know, it's hard to see how these two can be consistent because if a country, you know, in Germany, is it, it's, it's more or less at internal equilibrium, uh, then um, it's difficult to see what, what driving the external disequilibrium. But on the other hand, the suggestion you, you, you gave Germany basically to stimulate the economy, <coughs> so that would lead to, a, <coughs> to, you know, overheating. I think you even used the term overheating of the economy. But you basically, you create one distortion to reduce another distortion. So that's, that's more the... I would say the policy implications, um, but but overall I think current accounts and output gaps I, I need to jointly determine, and just let me draw the attention of all of you and, and, and also that you, Louise, that last year I had a paper 
in which I try to uh, estimate a new measure of, of uh, potential output and output gap, in which I use a measure of current account gap as an indicator to my output gap estimation based on the, on the simple observation that you know, when a country has, let's say, an excess demand, then we probably have uh, an excess current account deficit. Why there is a shortage of demand in a country, so there's a uh, <clears throat> negative output gap, then most likely there will be um, an excess uh, current account surplus. So uh, this is a much more broader question, and certainly it cannot be fixed easily like my other, other three points, but I would like to raise that I think it's, it's a very important issue to consider that current account gaps and output gaps are jointly determined. So, but again, before giving the floor back to Maria, let me thank you again for coming and, and I mean, congratulate on this excellent report and very nice presentation. Thank you very much, Zolta. Lots of questions. I would certainly like to involve the audience, but would you like to respond to some of these issues uh, briefly and then we can, we can open up the discussion? Um, sure. No, I'd be happy to and then take on, you know, yeah, additional questions as needed. And I think... Um, you, you raised some very important points, and I think that you hit on some of the very key ones um, uh, in, in your remarks. Um, and also you've hit, hit on some of the points, uh, including on the interconnectedness between output gap and current account gap. Uh, the whole issue of the stock imbalances, how we determine a norm for the stock imbalances. Um, these are two issues that we, um, our group, has been struggling with. and. Uh, they don't have necessarily easy answers. Um, and that's not to say that we cannot move in the direction of trying to answer them. But what I'll say up front is that for some of them, I won't be able to say much, except the fact that you're right and we need to give it more thought. But le let me try to address you know, up front some of the, the points that you made. Um, uh, the issue I think that you mentioned was um, FX reserves and the fact that we did not give it as much importance in this report um, than perhaps it's warranted. One of the things that that was quite um, striking in 2000, 2015, and it's just documented in one paragraph in the report, is that global reserves have come down. The reason why those came down was because countries that hold reserves, the large ones, China, and Saudi Arabia and Russia, all three of them drew down their reserves importantly. <laughs> they faced an important shock. In the case of China, it was much more of a confidence financial shock. Um, portfolio rebalancing, which is internal in the country, people took out their money, and you know the government and the central bank used its reserves to deal with that. Saudi Arabia, in advent of the oil price shock, and the need to stabilize its economy and maintain demand and growth, they use reserves for that particular reason. And the same thing can be said for Russia, okay? So what we saw at the global level was, yes, global reserve holdings coming down slightly. Um, there was some reserve increase by some, and what's interesting is to see who were those. So you look at Switzerland as being one of the big, you know, um, uh, countries that increase reserves. Um, Hong Kong, Singapore, many of them global, you know, what would be offshore financial centers. They're the ones that, you know, that saw increase in their reserve holdings. But by and large, global reserve holdings, you know, did come down. What is interesting is that despite the fact that the global reserve holdings came down, what would be, you know, interest rates on safe assets didn't necessarily go up. 
So there was private demand that offset some of the important um, reduction in reserves, okay, that took place. So that's the first point on reserves. And another important point to mention is that what we saw were that the pattern of reserve sales and reserve accumulation were not adding to global imbalances. It wasn't like China was buying reserves in order to keep its exchange rate undervalued, quite the opposite. It wasn't that emerging markets were buying reserves to keep their exchange rates from appreciating, the opposite. So, you know, reserves, what we felt was, it was less of a story this year because of the shocks that were happening both on the commodity and capital flow side in terms of the explaining imbalances per se. That's not to say that it's not, there's not an interesting story there. Um, on the issue of stock imbalances, you know, we don't have a norm. And because we don't have a norm, we basically use the benchmark is roughly the current um, NFA position of a country. Um, there's some exceptions, and, and I will maybe make note of both Spain and South Africa that have maybe very negative IIP positions. And in the case of Spain, there's a sense from the team and the authorities that you know this IIP, the negative NFA position needs to come down to something that is more reasonable. And that's how they basically come up with their assessment on, on their external position, is a judgment that Spain is still far too vulnerable and even though they've made improvements on the flow side, the stock sides are still extremely large. 100% of GDP, yes, they've come down, but more work is necessary. Necessary. That is, you know, that is done country by country, and it's the country teams that determine what the benchmark would be. What that implies, nevertheless, is that because the benchmark is basically what it is today, more thought needs to be given into understanding what would be a reasonable norm for a particular country on their stock position, um, both on the, the surplus countries as well as the deficit countries. And um, there, is, there are plans to do further work on this. Um, this, is not a, this is a difficult area um, because unlike finding norms for a debt position of countries, let's say, you know, um, we don't like public debt to be above a certain amount. Um, and, you know, we have some thresholds that we have at the IMF established. Advanced economies cannot have public debt above 70% of GDP or 80% of GDP. EMs, anything above 60 becomes a question mark. The financing also becomes critical. In the case of NFA positions, you have both positive and negative. So having a view on, on whether, you know, the norm for a particular country should be, um, is not as straightforward as one would like. Um, so more work needs to be done in this, and I completely you know, agree with you that having a norm will be critical. Um, and we're, we're hoping and, and, and we're also planning to do more work on this. Finally, the interconnectedness between the output gap and the current account gap, and then also this make reference to the policy advice in Germany. Um, they are interconnected. The clearly countries that have an output gap a large output gap tend to have weaker demand and as a result, a stronger current account, okay? Our model takes that into account and the gaps, the external gaps that I presented here are those that strip the cyclical components. So once I strip out the contributions from the output gap, I can tell you what my underlying, you know, external position is stripping that out. 
going to the policy advice for Germany, a country that has an output gap that is closed, right, and they have a very large surplus, excess surplus position, how do we deal with that and what advice do we provide? And what we are saying is that, you know, well-targeted, growth-friendly, fiscal easing, even if temporary, will help an internal revaluation or appreciation to take place, okay? But our view is that because they are, their output gaps are closed, that the type of fiscal policy should be much more of a temporary nature and rely far more on structural policies to encourage investment. So yes, we are telling Germany more fiscal. You can live with some you know, overheating and that overheating would probably be temporary. And that overheating would be necessary and would be conducive to the type of internal appreciation that would, that would help to reduce um, the, the excess surplus. So again, in Germany is some reliance on fiscal but more reliance on structural because of where they are in the cycle. Thank you, Luis. Thank you very much. Lots of very interesting issues to discuss. Perhaps we can take some questions from the floor. Lots, lots to, uh, to discuss. Yes. Hi. Uh, this is Claudio Perez from the Spanish Daily El, El País. From a southern perspective, in the case of the in, of the euro area, what are the policy implications of a surplus of 8.5% of nine or 9% nine in the case of Germany? I mean, in Spain, we have reduced the deficit from 10 to zero, but we are in front of a wall. Uh, do you consider that the position of Germany uh, makes more, more difficult the adjustment in, in, in the southern countries? Um, you can bundle questions together, yes. <laughs> Sylvain Plaska at the University of Leuven. Well, uh, thank you. It's a very impressive work, of course, and uh, highly competent. But I have a question. Uh, I'm taking back to, let's say, the early years of the financial crisis, when we did have very devastating, in my view, I may be wrong, or they may be wrong, devastating criticism about the emphasis being put on current account imbalances. I'm thinking about the work, excellent work being done at the BIS by Claudio Borio and others, you know. It had to do, of course, at the time when, well, even today, you know, in the uh, US Congress, there are politicians who don't understand the damn thing about all that and still make some noise. Uh, yeah. So again, you know, uh, filling a current account imbalances, I don't say that they are not important if they are persistent, but they are really put here in the, in, in, in the center of your interest, also with respect to policy implications. And there I do have my doubts because the criticisms that are made by Borio and the others were really, I think in my view, and still are quite, quite important. So I think can one really put so much emphasis, should one put so much emphasis on the current account uh, uh, imbalances? Linked to that is in fact also, you said it, you know, the great emphasis, uh, emphasis you still have on uh, foreign exchange uh, rates. And there one can also, if one looks how the foreign exchange markets function, function, you know, or believed to be functioned, also one can have some very, very, very fundamental questions. <coughs> okay, why, why don't we take these questions and we can have another round? Okay. Very good. Um, 
Let me try to address your question on the implications of large surpluses in Germany and the Netherlands for the rest of Southern Europe. Okay. One of the interesting things that we saw was that in the run-up to the global financial crisis, we had an increase in the surpluses of Germany and the Netherlands and an increase in the deficits in much of Southern Europe and, you know, what would be enabled the periphery. And, you know, what you could say is that, well, those deficits were enabled because of the surpluses in these other countries, okay? What has been interesting is that since the global financial crisis, the external position of all of Europe has improved, meaning both of the surplus countries as well as the deficit countries, implying that the improvements from Europe are coming at the expense of the rest of the world, okay? So it is no longer the issue that, you know, um, the link between, you know, what would be maybe Northern Europe and Southern Europe, uh, it was there pre-global financial crisis, but that link is not there today. Now, the question is, you know, what will it take, um, or, you know, would it help, you know, this, would Southern Europe benefit from, you know, stronger wage growth in Germany, um, or greater demand in Germany? Um, and I think it much depends and, you know, more analysis is needed. What is the export structure? Um, and, you know, of Spain and Portugal and Greece, um, you know, what is demand for their goods and their services from, um, from Northern Europe in order to ascertain that particular question? Um, you know, we live in a global world, so, you know, um, improvements in Spain in some ways have come uh, at the expense of the rest of the world, not necessarily, it was not necessarily the surpluses in Germany coming down that enabled the deficits of Spain, you know, to, to improve. Um, I do think, however, that improving the, uh, the external, you know, reducing the surpluses in both the Netherlands and Germany is likely going to benefit, well, you know, the Southern Europe as, you know, demand in these, in, in Northern Europe um, improves and, um, and that will enable um, Southern Europe to be able to export more and improve their external position, which needs to continue to improve. Yes, they move towards surpluses, but their NFA position remains largely negative and, and largely negative. So, um, so that's my attempt of answering a bit, you know, your question. Um, the point that you mentioned, um, which is too much emphasis on global imbalances, you know, I will say the following, I agree with you. And, you know, what I want to go back is the point that Salt made, which is these global imbalances are nothing more than a symptom rather than, you know, at the end, the result. They're basically the symptom of the fact that we have a global economy that is recovering at a very uneven pace, but also a symptom of policies that have not been appropriate. And I think that's the basic point that we want to make here. Um, so the unevenness in recovery is also related to the fact that the policies to push, you know, demand um, have not been adequate. Too much reliance on monetary policy and demand diverting type policies and not enough on fiscal policy. And there I would make mention that it is particularly the case of surplus countries that should be doing more on that end. That will help the global economy and will help in the process to reduce imbalances. So again, I think to answer your question, imbalances are nothing more than a symptom, but they also reflect a bit the fact that policies and the way they have been designed 
have been ill-suited for the global economy as a whole. That's... Any other questions? Yes, please. Uh, Lars Olgott, formerly with the Commission. Not too much of a question, but some comments. Um, imbalances really don't matter that much in the sense that if we didn't have the imbalance that the U.S. has, uh, we would be in a terrible state uh, in the terms of the world economy. So they benefit from the fact that they have the reserve currency, the only one which can print as much money as anybody, and therefore uh, others are willing to, to hold that, including China, which has this enormous amount of treasury bills. So we should be happy in a way that there is this enormous imbalance in the U.S. In terms of Japan, there is this uh, big stock of uh, sovereign debt. But is that a problem if it's mostly to other Japanese who hold this debt? It's more a question of an internal question of confidence in the uh, Japanese economy, the ability of the central bank to be able to continue to finance that. So there's really not a problem in Japan, even though they have this enormous sovereign debt. Uh, a little bit the same with Italy. Most of that is internal. Of course, if you don't want at some stage to hold Italian debt as a foreigner, then there can be a run on the Italian economy. What about Russia? or Saudi Arabia, well, they have these enormous uh, sovereign types of, of reserves, exchange reserves that they can use. They have used, as you said, uh, and they can use these to bolster and to be able to counter the uh, economic losses as a result of the price fall in, in oil. So the only imbalance that I think is important is the one we just talked about, the German one. Because that has an effect internally uh, between the member states, in particular imposing uh, more austerity on the southern part, but certainly also on the rest of the world, because it exports its surplus uh, to the outside. So I don't see there's a contradiction between having no output gap and a surplus gap, because that output gap goes outside uh, because of the fact that Germany is part of the euro and as such enjoys a competitive advantage because if they were not in the euro, the German mark would be appreciated. So I don't see there's a contradiction here. So the only imbalance I think which is really important is the German one. Thank you. There's a question there at the back. My name is. Yes, yes uh, thanks for the presentation. I guess it's a follow up question. Uh, Shaban Skritcher from the European Commission, DG Energy. Follow up question from previous uh, comments that the speakers made. I was wondering if you made any, any connections between uh, current account imbalances and the macro indicators, which more relate to social, real economy, uh, thinking about jobs, employment, um, income distribution, and real wages. Because um, I think. If, if, you, if you manage to establish some kind of systematic relationship between changes in current and counting balances 
and this type of uh, social economic indicators, maybe, maybe this also asks ask you a question if, if current account imbalances are a problem or, or not. Thank you. Yes. I'm Pierre Wulf from the National Bank of Belgium. Uh, I have a question remark on, on the stock flow issue. Uh, you, you point uh, to the importance of monetary policy on exchange rate, but it also has an impact on the return on the net asset position. To take the example of Belgium, which I know better, which is probably not the most important in a small country, but we had a substantial positive contribution of revenues in the current account because of an, our net asset position, but in the current uh, environment and also because of the structure of the gross uh, stocks, uh, we now have a negative uh, contribution to the current account. And the fact that Germany is in fact basically lending money to the rest of Europe at negative interest rates is having an impact on the dynamics of the, of the stocks. Uh, so, so in a way, uh, um, there is some move in the direction of uh, relieving the pressure on the southern European countries through the, the monetary policy that the ECB is, uh, is, and also basically on the fact that the, the pressure on reducing deficit has been reduced because of that. So maybe, uh, but that might be more important within Europe, but the impact of monetary policy on, on revenues and pressure in the financing of, uh, of the, the negative uh, stocks of debt uh, would be a relevant uh, area to look at. Thank you. Anastasis Pandreo from Big Energy. Um, just, I would like to remark on how does Europe as a whole can better manage the impact of these uh, imbalances by still not being financial and monetary union in the whole sense, and how also that impact is dissipated and managed within the member states. Thank you. Uh, the question is, how does Europe or how can Europe better manage the impact from the imbalances when Europe is still not one financial system? So basically the monetary policies and the fiscal policies we talked about earlier uh, in, in, this, in, the, in, the, uh, in the current reality of not having one, one um, entity to manage them. And also how, how I want to hear a view on how this should be better managed within country of eurozone and what do you think europe should do europe not being fully integrated you mean how can it manage yes, the exactly. integrated financially meaning one european central bank and uh, one european minister of economy and so forth like a like a like an um, for example in the united states just wanted to one comment and one uh, question. The comment is that I also missed the reserves uh, purchases for 2015, in particular the very important purchases of the European Central Bank by its own reserves, which is QE. Um, it's basically reserve assets that are purchased by its central bank. We don't have to buy the reserves of other countries, we can buy our own, right? So 
this seems to have had an impact on income balances, but also on the net lending borrowing of countries in Europe. And the second is, um, it's, I, I don't expect an answer from you, but still for the policy recommendations, I would, we would like to have a bit more idea of orders of magnitude. If you say there should be some fiscal in the Netherlands, temporary fiscal in Germany, I mean, how much are we talking about? Germany is still a relatively large closed economy. Uh, 65, 70% of its GDP are driven by own demand. So if you want to reduce the surplus by 4%, it means increasing demand by what? 12, 15, 16%? So how much are we talking about? And also in terms of euro area, we want to increase our inflation, right? So we need positive output gap in the euro area, in percent of euro GDP. If this is just done by Germany, it's a lot it's a very high positive elbow gap. Okay. You only have five minutes to uh, yes. <laughs> respond to okay. the questions that you think are... Very good. <laughs> no, I thought uh, many of the points that were raised are important ones. I'll touch upon some of them, including on the comment, the comment that was saying that the only imbalance that matters is that of Germany. They're the ones that are undervalued, their current accounts that are too strong. If you take that view, then you have to take the view as who is on the other side who is actually going to be sort of overvalued and whose current account positions is too weak. And so our view is what we try to do is inject multilateral consistency. And our view is that even, even if the United States has, you know, the exorbitant privilege, thanks because of the fact that it has a reserve currency, um, yes, that brings down what would be the norm for the United States, and it does in the model. Its current account position and its currencies are its current account position is too weak and its currency is too strong. And on the flip side, we have is Germany. Okay, so I think that you cannot be thinking of Germany in isolation. And if I would quickly point to a chart that I have here at the end, oops, sorry, right here. What this does here is if you look at the United States and you see that purple bar, that is the exorbitant privilege. So for the United States, the fact that it has a reserve currency, that's the dollar, means that it can run a deficit. The problem that we have is that the deficit it currently has, it's too large relative to their fundamentals. And we saw that in lieu of the global financial crisis where the US was running very large current account deficits. And at some point there was a view that that was no longer sustainable. So again, we try to inject multilateral consistency. If there is a sense that Germany is you know, undervalued, somebody has to be overvalued. There was a very good question with regards to the, the more, you know, social um, income distribution implications of, you know, imbalances or correction of imbalances. A couple points I'd like to make. The first is that, you know, um, for much of the, the periphery of Europe, the improvement in imbalances um, has been enabled because of fiscal consolidation, which has had, I am sure, important social implications. Whether it has increased income um, inequality, I don't know, but clearly what it has meant is that it's had to tighten fiscal policy and probably cut some social programs, and this has come at some expense and some social cost, okay? So, you know, in some ways, the change in imbalances, even the improvements, have with it, you know, some social implications. And with regards to policies, that you need to design fiscal policies so that you protect a sector or a segment of your population, so... I think on the issue that you, there was another point that was raised between the relationship between the income balance and in some ways what I would call the valuation effects. 
So what you have is countries that have a very positive NFA position, let's say, you know, Germany being one, the Netherlands being one, Switzerland being one, Sweden, okay? These are countries that obtain an income balance by the fact that they own net foreign assets, okay? In addition to the fact that they have an income balance, they also have important valuation losses precisely because of the type of monetary policy that you mentioned. So they actually are observing losses in their assets, okay? The question is this, how do we judge a current account norm um, in countries that have large income balances. The way that we do this now, in my view, is insufficient. We factor in income balances as part of the current account, but on the other hand, we're not factoring in these persistent valuation losses. And in the case of Switzerland, whose, whose current account surplus is in excess of 10% of GDP, right, the team makes adjustments for the fact that some of these income balance it's there, but it has important valuation losses that are persistent over time. So when you think of an economic agent making intertemporal decisions about saving and consumption, you're not only gonna look at the income that you re receive, but you have to look at the capital gains as well. So these are the type of additional, I would say, um, adjustments or refinements that we need to do, and, and your point is, is finally you know, well taken. Um, there was, there was an issue with regards to, you know, European institutions and, um, you know, what is needed to better manage imbalances. I think clearly what we have been saying is that um, we have a monetary union, we don't have a fiscal or banking union. And I think in the case of imbalances, it would be important to deal with the, you know, intra-European intra imbalances by having a fiscal union that is able to distribute its resources where it's, most needed. And so again, you know, um, dealing with imbalances within Europe would require probably a much stronger fiscal union. Okay, one last question. Is no, there no, any, no, not the question, uh, an, an answer to, to basically what Lars said and on, on, on Germany and on the interaction between current account balances and, and or imbalances and output gaps. So in, in, in my model, Germany, so in my calculations, which, which I publish in a working paper, Germany has a negative output gap, and this negative output gap is a reflection that it has an excess current account surplus. And I believe that is consistent, so similar to you, I also suggest Germany to do a fiscal expansion, but since in my model Germany starts from negative output gap, that fiscal expansion would help both closing the output gap and uh, mm and reducing the excess surplus. Now, when I presented the commission or, or discussed with German colleagues, they are completely disagree and, and upset and say, look, I mean, unemployment is so low, how can Germany have a negative output gap? And, you know, my answer that, you know, look, first of all, you have a huge current account surplus, excess again, and not just implied by demographic factors and things like that. And secondly, investment is too low. So, so for me, the story that Germany has still has a negative output gap is, is consistent with a large excess surplus on the current account. Oh. Uh, did, yeah, sure, there's, there's 10 seconds. Okay. <laughs> Just very briefly, there was a question as to, well, what is the, the, the type of fiscal easing that Germany would need in order to close its gap? Yeah. And I think you make the point is that the gap is quite large, is in excess of 3% of GDP. Um, you know, you would need to have a huge fiscal expansion in order to 
you know, to, to close that particular external gap. I think the recognition is that um, you know, fiscal won't do it by itself. Um, structural will be key. And more importantly, this is going to be, this, these, these are fairly persistent, these imbalances. So um, you don't necessarily need to address them all in one year. Um, so again, you know, th there's an issue of complementary policies and the role of structural and recognizing that fiscal policy can only go so far. There, there is one, you know, if you look at the, this, this last chart right here, this tells me a bit what is my current account gap, and here we see the case of Germany, in the, which is the further right. It's about, you know, 4% to 4.5% of GDP, and I think that red bar is basically the fiscal contribution. If you are able to somehow tighten, I mean, ease fiscal policy so that you reach your desired levels, you would be able to close the gap by about 1.5% of GDP only. But, but, but Stefan, your, your question implies that it's not a temporary fiscal policy, it's much more permanent or semi-permanent. Yeah. Right. How much you want to increase, how much of a positive output gap you want to have? I mean, just having a 1% positive output gap generally will not, do, will not do much to your inflation. So again, I think the assessment, what we try to say is we have a large excess surplus how do we address it? And our view is that fiscal policy will help. I think there's the issue of, you know, how do we interplay this with the output gap? Uh, that was something that we added to this particular presentation to highlight the, the, um, the trade-offs, the policy trade-offs. The model itself, the nice thing about this particular model is that it gives you also a sense of where, where are the sources of the gap, not only identifying the gaps and what policies need to be put in place to close it. So if you have a desired fiscal policy like Germany does, it really needs to sort of move towards it, meaning that it should expand fiscal policy to close it. Now, we're not saying it's going to be the, the big contributor. In fact, it's only, you know, maybe one-fourth of the total. And there are other factors that need to play a role. But the interplay with, with the output gap, I think it's an important one and, and deserves more thought. Thanks. Thank you. For your time for today. Uh, uh, thank you very much, Luis and Zolt, for, uh, for your comments. Uh, Luis is going to be around for a little while, so if you want to catch him, you can. Uh, let me then thank you again for coming to Bruegel. It's a very interesting report, as Zolt said, very thorough analysis and very interesting results. And we look forward to more of this work. If you can join me in thanking him, the author.